This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Most of us believe that the tech industry is going to have an incredible influence over everything we say and do over the foreseeable future. And most of us believe that that they tend to know exactly what they're talking about. But longtime journalist Dan Lyons isn't buying the line of bull being spread around. He spent two years working at marketing software firm HubSpot in Boston, his hometown, to figure out what was going on. And that story comes out in his new book, Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. You may know also Dan for his work uh, behind the fake Steve Jobs blog. And Dan joins us on the show right now. Dan, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. So explain how this all came about. You, you end up going to work for HubSpot. Yep. I, I, well, I was working at Newsweek and got laid off and looked around and saw that it wasn't just that my company was, was uh, struggling, but the entire industry I was in was struggling. And I thought I should start a new career. And even though I was 51 at the time, I thought, well, you know, I can start over. And I thought marketing would make sense. And, and a lot of companies, especially tech companies and VC firms, are now hiring journalists to come in and be their, their in-house blogger kind of person. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was, yep. Yeah. So I, I decided to make that leap. And so what was the process like in terms of going to them and getting hired by them? Um, I reached out to, to someone there and said, hey, you know, I, I live in Boston and um, at the time I was running a tech blog in San Francisco and commuting back and forth. But I said, you know, I'm, I, I really kind of want to try working in, in the tech industry. And, and uh, I went and had a series of, of interviews and meetings and uh, met with the two founders and hit it off with them. And so they, uh, they offered me a job. And from what I understand, uh, you had that meeting with those two gentlemen and – didn't hear much. Didn't hear much from them afterwards. Yeah, that was the thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and not just them, but also the CMO, who was one level down from them, who I think was supposed to be my boss. Like just kind of, yeah, they just kind of vanished. And um, uh, yeah, never, never, uh, kind of just. I, I did. I made a meeting with the two founders uh, a couple months in to sort of check in with them and tell them, look, things aren't working out. And but I have this idea. I have this other job. I think I should do here for you guys. And. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically they're sort of uh, absentee kind of guys. Yeah, so, it was just a. So what was what was the company like? I mean, what was the day to day for you, and and what were the other people that that were working there like? Um, a lot of nice people, uh, a lot of young, very energetic people. The average age is twenty six at the time. It was a lot, a lot of people right out of college, and they. It wasn't by accident. The CEO sort of did an interview at the time and said, "Look, we're specifically trying to hire." people in their 20s, Gen Yers, because, you know, older people just don't get it. They don't get technology, and they're kind of very overrated. So it was intentionally a very, very young place, and I've, I've described it sometimes as a mix of a, a frat house and uh, a kindergarten and a cult. <laughs> you know, so a lot of very brainwashed people who are really, really think they're making the world a better place and changing the world and doing important uh, work when really, I mean, a lot of it is kind of very tedious um, 
tedious, repetitive work. But, yeah. So you talk about in there about uh, about I guess a lot of these people were were kind of drinking the Kool Aid, and maybe you were not so much. Yeah, yeah, I think that is exactly right. Yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, yeah, drinking the Kool Aid is exactly the the phrase, and uh, uh, yeah, I think being a little older and maybe <coughs> naturally somewhat skeptical or cynical. Um, made me not a good fit for that kind of environment. So how was the company successful? Because you, you kind of lay out that, you know, like a lot of uh, the, the, the companies that are, that are taking this newfangled approach, you'd see dogs in there. Uh, yeah. You talk about seeing Nerf guns in there. How was this company successful? Well, you know, that, that's a good point. And, and probably the point that's most relevant for Wharton radio listeners is that I think a lot of, I came to believe that this company and then a lot of other companies that I've been following and covering as a journalist, but had never quite understood it this way, that they're essentially not really companies. They're financial vehicles. They are created by venture capitalists as a way to move money from the public markets to the pockets of venture capitalists and a couple of founders. And so they're successful with a very simple plan, which is Grow fast, lose money, go public, right? And and there was a time not so long ago when to go public you needed to be profitable and demonstrate some our track record of profitability. There are now a generation of companies that go public while losing money and continue losing money for years and years and years, um, and yet are quote unquote successful. They're successful in the public markets. They successfully can grow revenues, but. It's like if you and I started a business where we bought dollar bills and sold them for 75 cents, and we say, well, look at our top line is growing like crazy. Look at how, look at how fast we're growing. Yeah. So it's sort of that. You, you, if you're a VC, you take some money, you pump it into creating the company, then you find some traction, get, get some, kind of, some kind of repeatable process, and then you just plow money into customer acquisition or audience acquisition if it's an advertising play. And you pump money into that, you lose money, and then you – take it into the public markets and cash out and walk away before it blows up. So that is sort of the model. And that's, that was what the revelation was for me as a business journalist is I'm in there and I finally realized like, oh, that's what this is about. Like, that's <laughs> what this is, right? And then I realized it's not just these guys. It's all of these companies. And, and so it was an amazing epiphany for me. But, um, and maybe it's so obvious that it shouldn't have been an epiphany to me, but it, it sort of was. And uh, uh, <clears throat> And, you know, we read all this stuff, like, and it was, to me, a contrast with everything you read about startups in the tech blogs, especially. It's this sort of, like, uh, sort of, sort of hero worship of these tech blogs, these heroic entrepreneurs who are striking out. And, and the VCs sort of promote this myth, too, of, like, you don't want to go work for some big Fortune 500 company. You want to be an ah, cool, hip entrepreneur and right. make your own destiny. So there was this sort of cognitive dissonance between the way the world is described and what I was experiencing inside there. We're joined by Dan Lyons. He is the uh, author of the book Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So then from your experience and and what you went through in in your time there, uh, do you think that, that what you saw is more the case with a lot of the other tech companies out there, or is this kind of a little bit of an outlier? I think in terms of the crazy culture, the place where I was working was, was extreme, uh, but not atypical. And I've been overwhelmed by 
the amount, the email I'm getting and the, the comments on Twitter from people saying, oh, my God, I'm having PTSD after reading your book or reading. <laughs> I published an article on LinkedIn and an article on um, in the New York Times op-ed page, and, and I um, and Fortune ran an excerpt. So there are people reading aspects of the book in different places, but I'm every day wake up and have people telling me, oh, this is just like what happened to me, or this is just like the place where I work. Now I have people sending me pictures of their crazy kindergarten design workplaces, you know, people sitting on bouncy balls and boxes of toys next to the desk. And I think there are people who are maybe my generation who do find this kind of silly and ridiculous. There are people half my age who I think just think that's work and that's what work looks like to them. And so, um, you know, different people have a different response. But yeah, no, there are, you know, if you go for a tour around Silicon Valley companies, it's like they're all out trying to outdo each other with, you know, how crazy can their, sure, their yeah. headquarters be. So I think it's not, it's not atypical, but I got into one that was very, very at the, at the far end of the crazy spectrum. You talk, uh, you talk a little bit in the book about uh, the, the, it's almost a little bit, I guess, a language barrier that, that you had to deal with. <laughs> I called it HubSpeak because the company was called right. HubSpot. But, yeah, they had their own language, and they had sort of, you know, DRIs and KPIs, lots of acronyms. And then <laughs> they talked about delightion, which is the, the business we were supposedly in. Was we weren't selling software. We were, we were spreading delight at, among our customers, oh, and they God. turned that into a different noun, which was delightion. And uh, they would say one plus one equals three. And I don't really know what that meant, but it's kind of like if an idea was really good, it was one plus one equals three kind of idea or – you know, GSD, get blank done, you know, that I'm a GSD kind of rock star and I'm a, with superpowers. People talk about having superpowers and what's your superpower? My superpower is sending out email. Like, okay, cool. So it's just like very weird, you know, and um, yeah, a, a, a little strange. And, and, and I, you know, one of the founders brings a teddy bear to meetings and, and it's, the teddy bear is supposed to be the customer and we're all supposed to just take this seriously and not laugh at it. And I had a hard time not... Cool. Laughing at stuff like that. Well, and again, a lot of this. Uh, look, I'm 49, so I, I mean, it has to be a little bit of a generational shock. For, you know, you go into this and deal with this for two years, and you see all this stuff going on. It is so far and away, f- away from everything that you've probably known. You know, in your time working at Newsweek, or or just you know, kind of being around different businesses. Well, and that's an interesting point too. That I think that. I think people of our age, our generation, which I guess we would be Gen X, right? We're not really boomers, right? I think we came into the workforce with, in in the 20th century with certain expectations. In a way, expectations that we were going to have a career or a work life somewhat similar to the ones our parents had. So my dad worked at the same at AT AT&T his whole career, you know? Um, And a, a world sort of defined by... Uh, Alfred P. Sloan and his years at GM, right, in the famous book about GM and management. And yet, but halfway through our careers, the rules all change. So so young people coming into the workforce today are coming in with an expectation that we're going to work one or two years at this place and then move to the next and then move to the next. And you're going to be doing these gigs, the gig economy or the sharing economy. But our generation, we're kind of caught in the middle. And, And in 2008 and 9, when the big collapse happened. If you were 60, you were close enough to retirement, you could just kind of like, okay, you're out. But there was a generation of us that got caught in the middle of it. And I think that was another thing that I I find very interesting is is trying to adjust to this new concept of work, which is both goofy, right, with all the kooky stuff at the office, but then also kind of, in a way, cruel and, and not nearly as supportive as 
the one that we entered the workforce with. Is it is it almost a little bit of a, of a scam? I hate to use that term, but it, it does sound like it. Well, you know, I think to some to some extent, young people, uh, millennials, were coming in and being told that, you know, our, our company had a culture code, and one of the uh, elements of the code was. You know, we're not your family. We're a team, not your family. And the implication of that is, or not the implication, the, it, it was explicit, was that, you know, we need superstars at every position, at shortstop and second base. So if you're not the best at your thing or you're not the cheapest, you know, you can expect to get cut and traded or, you know, not traded, but just pull it. So I think there is there's a way in which the, the free beer and the candy and the, the cool, hip environment, blah, 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 is really a scam yet, yeah, and people are being conned into these jobs that aren't re- it isn't really in their interest the ones who are benefiting are the people at the top who are who save space for example by putting people in open workspaces right instead of giving everyone an office or you know a cubicle they cram these kids into these rooms and that's like because that's how your generation likes to work but yeah. it's really you know about saving on space so we have unlimited vacation but that's really so we don't have to carry the balance of our owed vacation time on our books right there's lots of ways in which these things are set up to be sort of ephemeral companies to to grow fast and get public as quickly as they can yeah. and not build sustainable jobs for people that will last for decades. They have no interest really in providing employment to someone for the rest of their life. Dan Lyons joins us. His book, uh, which is out, Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. You may very well have, have seen this firsthand, this type of environment. 844 844- Nine four two seven eight six six. It's funny how you lay that out because a friend of mine here in Philadelphia worked for a retailer uh, that had built beautiful kind of chic offices in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Uh, you know, kind of that transformative area, and they talked. They you know talked about the. You know, the Friday happy hour parties, you know, everybody gets together. They would be playing, uh, you know, they'd be playing Pong, you know, uh, with beer. And, you know, that was the environment. And not more than maybe a year and a half later, that person left that job. And it was the worst experience that that he had ever said it was. And, you know, it, it kind of it kind of feeds right into that whole philosophy. Well, one thing that happens, too, is that you have these. Um, cool, kooky companies, right, with the beer pong and everything. But what you don't have is any kind of emphasis on, uh, I don't know what your friend's experience was, but, but an emphasis on training managers. So you have a lot of people who end up in management roles who are undertrained or untrained. And, you know, there's yeah. a lot of, I guess they would call this old-fashioned, but, uh, you know, I think the reason a lot of people have bad experiences is they're in a work workplace where there's, uh, there's not a lot of, uh, skill at actually managing a company. Like a lot of these places are just very poorly managed. And, yeah. um, that leads, I think, to bad outcomes for a lot of people. And in some respects, part of it also, and, and uh, so you know, my, my friend was in IT. Oh. And, and so, you know, you have a, a mindset these days because so many corporations have to worry about, you know, protecting their data, protecting their resources and stuff like that. And IT, compared to what some of these tech companies are, you know, whether it's retail or the tech sector, whatever, you know, it's almost a little bit of a conflict. It, it's two different mindsets. And that a lot of times just doesn't work. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and then often, you know, it's, it's very easy. And, and even as, as we're having this conversation, I can imagine people inside saying you're just old and you don't get it. Like that is the immediate 
feedback that I've, I've, in fact, expl- I've, people have written articles and comments saying, you're just old, you don't get it, you're, you're just stuck in the past. And, and maybe, maybe that's the case. And maybe it is just a thing of, you know, a certain generation, we don't get the way things are going. But I, I do think that there are problems in this new model that, that needed to be kind of called out and at least uh, talked about, you know. I mean, the, the, the really interesting thing for me is that when these guys found out I was writing a memoir about being older and trying to work in one of these places, um, they actually went out and, and somehow did something to hack into my computer, or and they were trying to extort people to prevent the book being published. So, and the FBI investigated it, and it, we're still finding out what happened because they won't. There was a big cover up, but underneath this sort of happy rhetoric of being like, "Oh, we're you know changing the world and we're so nice," they're actually kind of like scary people underneath yeah. this. So, and they have your data. Like that's what really scares me. This company has eighteen thousand customers and has all of their data and the data of their customers. So we're trusting these people, but I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if we should be trusting so much to companies that are you know, poorly managed and a little bit, you know, not, not maybe. It, well, I mean, you throw in the fact that you also have uh, you know, the, the amounts of hacking that goes on just in general, and, and it does make you wonder where we are kind of headed with all this in the next few years. Well, and that's and that's already become right this huge issue where where um, you know everybody's being hacked constantly. From what I've been told, I mean, as a reporter, I've been done stories where they just say, "Look, you know, there's only two kinds of companies: those who those who know they've been hacked, and those who aren't aware of it yet, but um, who don't know it. You know, that everybody's been broken into. But yeah, I think it is a a huge huge issue. And then the other issue is, if you have a company that's really badly managed and out of control, how can they protect themselves? Even if they even if they're not spying on their customers. How can they guarantee the safety of their customers? So it's, yeah, these are, um, and it, as the model becomes more about, say, Google is more about not really paying, you know, you're not really charging money for your service, but you're getting paid in data, yeah. in people's personal data and their habits and they're tracking them. It becomes more important even to, to protect their their uh, their information. It's Same thing with the whole SaaS model and the cloud model, which is now the, the you know, the, 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 the big model in software. It's... Um, you know, companies are being paid in a sense in data and in personal information, and uh, but they're not really able to protect it. So it is interesting that that uh, you know the the way this all kind of played out because your last chapter in the book is graduation day. Yeah, and as you kind of alluded to, graduation the term. Uh, didn't exactly have have the kind of meaning that probably a lot of people would think about. Well, I forgot to mention that when we talked about language, right? That was the that was the the the, uh, the term for when you got fired was they called it graduation, and yeah. um, and <laughs> they would send out this cheery email saying, you know, somebody just you know Bob just graduated, and we wish him the best in his next big rock star adventure using his superpowers. We're so excited to see what he's going to do. It's like, dude, you just fired the guy, right? Yeah. But um, and that happened. I mean, constantly. That's the other thing about bad, you know, poor management is you're always hiring and firing and hiring and firing because you're not hiring well, right? So, um, and there's just a lot of growth anyway. So you need a lot of people. But yeah, that was that was one of my favorite things that you you know you'd get. You would graduate. I, I knew a woman who who begged them, please don't just, you know, they gave her two weeks to get out, and then she said, that's fine, but just please, when you announce it, don't call it graduation. <laughs> but they they did anyway. They they decided they had to call it graduation because that was. What, they've now said they're not going to do that anymore. They they um they've decided that that's too Orwellian and freaky, so they're not going to call it graduation for now, and they're just going to, you know, say thanks you. you know, 
whatever. I don't know what they'll say, but they're not going to call it that because they realize how nutty it is. Well, it is interesting, just kind of starting to wrap up a little bit, is the fact that I, I, I did want to know what that relationship is like between between you and HubSpot now, uh, now that the book is out. Well, they, they um, well, there isn't much of a relationship. Yeah. I mean, they, they posted a, a sort of response to the book and um, uh, <clears throat> uh, and said, you know, we, we do need to work on diversity. I, I raised some issues about the lack of diversity there. And uh, we, we're going to stop calling it graduation. And um, However, we're still going to keep the teddy bear. We like the teddy bear. And we're still going to have a teddy bear. <laughs> no matter what you think, we're, we're going to keep that. But, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I don't have really any contact with them. I have been trying to find out from them since last July uh, just, just to get some explanation of what it is that they did to me and my family. Did they break into our house? How did they try to get my book? Who were they trying to extort? What were they doing? And they won't talk to me. So it's a, the relationship is a little... Uh, strained. We're not really in touch, you know. But uh, so that's yeah. It is. It's it's really entertaining, Dan, and and yeah, and, and uh, congratulations on the book. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, may have thought and, and having seen this kind of culture, like I was saying firsthand with my friend, you know, I kind of wondered about the whole setup as well. And, and your book kind of reinforced it. And I think there are probably, as you said, with all the emails that you've gotten, uh, there are a lot of people out there that kind of have this feeling right now about certain companies, maybe not across the board, but but certain companies out there. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And it's uh, you know, it's been you know, it's been gratifying for me in a way to hear hear those stories, although their their stories are often very very sad. But uh, but yeah, it's it, it is. I I didn't realize that it would strike a nerve as much as it has, but. Um, yeah, which is both good and bad, right? But, right, exactly. Yeah. Dan, thanks again for giving us the time today. We wish you all oh. the best with the book, and, and uh, hopefully we get a chance to talk to you again down the line. I hope so. Thank you so much. You got it. Thanks again. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.